When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm Will Oremus. And I'm April Glazer. Hey everyone, welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We're recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, July 3rd. On today's show, we'll talk about the Facebook privacy scandal that won't go away, that is Cambridge Analytica. And we'll touch on some new data from our employer, Slate, that illustrates how Facebook is pulling back from the news business. Then we'll be joined by our colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, who covers courts and the law. We'll ask him about some recent tech-related Supreme Court cases and how the court's stance towards technology and privacy could change with the retirement of Justice Anthony Kennedy. And then we'll have Don't Close My Tabs, some of the most interesting stories we found online this week. All right, April, good to be back with you this week. Yeah, it is a, a nice summer. I'm actually here in, or it's, I don't know if it's a nice summer, but it's certainly an eventful one. Uh, I'm, I'm actually recording at this time from Washington, D.C., so from the other coast. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm here in Santa Barbara, as usual. And we have back in the news a story that we have covered so much on this show. It's Facebook's Cambridge Analytica scandal. It dominated tech and political headlines for a few weeks in March and April. It seemed like it culminated with Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg being called to Washington to testify before Congress for a few days in April. But the scandal's not going away, and it's back in the headlines this week. April, can you just give us the quick rundown on on why we're talking about Cambridge Analytica again? First off, nothing's really been resolved after the splash of headlines has kind of died down. And that, that headline splash did last, you know, a good month, it felt like. But uh, it, it ended with the fact that the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, was investigating Facebook for breaking an agreement it had with the agency in 2011 around getting permission from users when uh, sharing data. And now we've learned that the federal probe into uh, the a voter targeting firm that the Trump campaign was using and that the Ted Cruz campaign used as well has been broadened. Uh, the Justice Department, the FBI, uh, and the SEC, that's the Securities and Exchange Commission, are all looking into Cambridge Analytica now uh, and Facebook and uh, that relationship there. And, you know, basically, they're examining what Facebook said in the congressional hearing. They're examining what Facebook has said in the past. And they're looking at Facebook's actions and seeing if it lined up uh, because, you know, we don't really have good kind of laws around this and, and regulations around this. But if Facebook didn't do what it said it was going to do, there could be a case for deception there. Yeah, and I know some of the lawmakers who asked Mark Zuckerberg all those questions at the hearings were not thrilled with the responses that Facebook gave them. There were so many times during the hearings when Zuckerberg said, I'll have my team follow up with you on that. Facebook has actually published those follow-ups now in the past couple of weeks. And in a lot of cases, it seemed to still skirt the key questions. It would answer a question by referring to a different answer. And 
once again, Facebook managed to seemingly substitute corporate PR statements for, for really substantive answers to the lawmakers' questions. That's right. Well, there was actually a good article by our colleague Aaron uh, entitled What Facebook Admitted and Omitted, and it's 747 pages of answers for Congress. I'd submitted those on Friday evening. This was the second batch of answers that it had given uh, after the two days of hearings that Mark Zuckerberg sat through. Um, And, you know, just some headlines from that, you know, it looks like Facebook gave at least 52 companies special access to user data. Facebook gave 61 app developers an extension so they could continue to obtain data from users' friends after it claimed to be cutting off such access in 2015, right? So they're really now looking back at what Facebook said and what Facebook has done. And we have to remember throughout all of this that, you know, Facebook was aware of uh, how Cambridge Analytica had mishandled the user data back in 2015 and did not alert users about it. So we should expect uh, the widening of the federal probe to get into that. Right. And as we said at the time, it was unlikely that it was just Cambridge Analytica that was improperly harvesting user data or taking advantage of the access that Facebook gave to users' data. And we heard news in the past week about a different quiz app that apparently uh, used data in improper ways. And now this week, there's a headline in the Wall Street Journal that uh, relates to Google and Gmail. Uh, It's called Tech's Dirty Secret, the app developers sifting through your Gmail. And so now it looks like Google will have a a similar issue with uh, the the access that it gave to outside app developers to, to scan the email of certain Gmail users. And maybe this won't just be a Facebook story anymore. Right. So the Wall Street Journal is saying that hundreds of outside software developers uh, were able to scan the inboxes of like millions of Gmail users if they signed up to uh, for the email service through other services like, you know, automated travel itinerary planners, the Wall Street Journal says, um, or shopping price comparisons. And uh, and it seems like uh, that that email scanning and reading wasn't just metadata. So it wasn't just the subject line of the email or the time or the date or the person it was sent to but also the text and the content of that email. And it appears that some employees from those firms also had access to that content. So we can expect these, you know, major corporations, you know, remember uh, Gmail, Google is part of Alphabet, the second biggest company in the in the world. Uh, Facebook it usually ranks around the fourth most valuable company in the world to Forbes uh, to continue to be scrutinized for their privacy practices. Uh, but, Will, I want to um, actually go back to Facebook here because you had a huge story last week uh, kind of looking under the hood at Slate. You actually looked at some of our Facebook traffic uh, over the past year since Facebook has kind of been playing a game with how it presents news to uh, to Facebook users, to its 2.1 or, or more than that billion Facebook users. Can you tell us a little bit about what you found when it comes to uh, how Slate's Facebook traffic has oscillated uh, over the past year? All right. So Facebook said in January when it changed its newsfeed algorithm to deprioritize news that people might see maybe 4% of the posts in their Facebook feed would be news stories as opposed to 5% beforehand. It sounded like sort of a minor tweak. But it's really hard to get clear data on this because most publishers don't actually release their internal data on Facebook traffic, and Facebook doesn't tell you anything about traffic to specific publishers. So for this story, I talked to our bosses at Slate, and they were willing to disclose exactly what has happened in terms of readers from Facebook coming to Slate. And the drop-off has been really dramatic. 
So in January 2017, there were 28 million people who clicked through from Facebook to Slate. And in May 2018, that number was 3.63 million. So that's a, a drop off about 87%. That's much more dramatic than, than Facebook has said that publishers should expect. So part of the story was, look, here's at least one case where the numbers don't match up with fi- what Facebook has been saying. And then I wanted to look at, is that true of other publishers as well? Most of the other publishers I talked to, so these are news sites uh, that didn't want to be quoted because they still have relationships with Facebook, but they were willing to tell me off the record, yeah, we've seen huge drop-offs too. And it looks like Facebook has pulled away from the news business a little harder than it had previously indicated. And we see that in in high-level statistics, too. So Facebook, for years, Mm. was the number one driver of readership to news sites, which is what gave it that dominant position in the news business. And now it no longer is. Google has reclaimed its old spot as the number one driver of traffic to news sites. So we're just seeing a different news environment these days with Facebook occupying a less prominent role. And as painful as that is for publishers like Slate, I mean, it means potentially budget cuts, potentially layoffs, although fortunately we haven't had Facebook-related layoffs here at Slate yet. Other publishers have. But it, it could be a good thing in the long run because, as we all know, Facebook has really distorted the incentives around how the news is covered and presented. I mean, and it's such a a difficult situation to be in because, you know, we don't want to depend on these companies for our traffic. And yet we we do. Uh, And when they when they, you know, play these games where, you know, they increase traffic and then they decrease traffic and meaning they show news and then they don't show news, you know, we find that we can't depend on them. But how do we how do publishers move away? Is it even possible or is it just always going to be riding this train that they're on? Yeah. And we had uh, Adam Masseri, head of Facebook's newsfeed right. on this show a few months ago, and he said, look, nobody should be relying on us uh, for to send them traffic. You know, if they find that our tools are useful, great. If not, then, then they don't have to use Facebook. I found that a little disingenuous, uh, although I'm sure he believes it. But, you know, th- Facebook was became the place where people went to get their news. A lot, about 50% of Americans were going on Facebook to read the news. And so if you didn't participate, then you were out of luck. Uh, And so really publishers had no choice but to play Facebook's game. They are finding new sources of traffic, though. So Apple News has become a bigger uh, part of publishers' way of reaching their readers. Um, Google Chrome recommendations is booming. This is a a feature on Google's Chrome browser, especially on mobile, where when you open it up, it it will recommend you some personalized news stories to read. Uh, And these maybe have the potential to create, I think, a healthier news ecosystem long term because they do a better job of prioritizing legitimate news sources as opposed to the, the propaganda sites that Facebook seem to be so good at putting in your feed. And do we expect the same sort of kind of mercurial behavior from Google and Apple News or, or should publishers be geared for that as a potential? That's a great question. And and we just don't know yet. I mean, there we have seen in the past some of the downsides of Google being the dominant source of news traffic. I mean, we probably all remember, at least those in the media business, remember the SEO era. That's the search right. engine optimization, where news sites basically wrote their stories to jam as many Google search keywords into the headline as they possibly could. I mean, that wasn't ideal either. But uh, we'll see. Google's been working on better ways to, uh, to do that. So I, I think there's at least hope for a healthier ecosystem going forward. And just one thing that we can underscore here is that although Facebook has been playing games with how it presents the news, it has not made the company less profitable. Um, or maybe it, it, it's declined its, its growth and profits. That I'm not sure of, but it still has been profitable every quarter. Isn't that right? 
Yeah, that's right. And Facebook must be congratulating itself every day on acquiring Instagram for a billion dollars all those years ago. People thought it was crazy, but Instagram recently was given a valuation that was in the many tens of billions just by itself. And the fact that Facebook owns that has really insulated it against some of the the decline in Facebook's main app. And just a note on Adam Museri, who uh, we did a fantastic interview with, uh, so you should definitely check out our archives. He was the head of newsfeed at Facebook, but now he is at Instagram, where he is the current head of product. So uh, lots of resources being put into Instagram right now because people are enjoying it, it seems. That's for sure. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, but when we get back, we will discuss the Supreme Court, how it's changing, and how that affects tech with our colleague Mark Joseph Stern. Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Well, now we want to shift gears and talk a little bit about one of the major political stories of the past week, which is the resignation of Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy and what implications that might have for technology and privacy. So to help us make sense of that, we're lucky to have with us today our Slate colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, who covers courts and the law. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me on. So before we get into the tech implications of this, let me just ask, what's the consensus these days on the type of justice we can expect to replace Kennedy, who, as we all know, was sort of the swing vote on the Supreme Court before a a sort of moderate conservative? So everyone recognizes that Kennedy will be replaced by a justice who is significantly more conservative than he. Kennedy was, as you said, a swing vote. He swung left on some big social issues, most notably marriage equality, gay rights, and abortion rights. Um, His successor will not. uh, And uh, I think his successor will adhere to a very different constitutional theory. Justice Kennedy uh, always said that the framers entrusted future generations to identify and protect new kinds of liberty and equality, um, whereas his successor will almost certainly be an originalist in the mold of Justice Neil Gorsuch uh, and his own predecessor, Justice Antonin Scalia, and will attempt to um, adhere to the original public meaning of the Constitution as ratified. So we will be having even more seances um, with the old white dead men who wrote our founding charter. (laughs) Sorry, guys, I have to laugh at that uh, because Mark is so good with words. But I want to move into some more concrete things. In the past few weeks, we've seen a couple of cases that really hit the tech industry pretty hard. Um, Let's start out with the one that I want to spend less time on. uh, And that is uh, being kind of called in short, the Amex decision. And that is about the fact that um, American Express um, had kind of contractually forbidden merchants from um, 
encouraging cardholders to use competitors uh, if, say, American Express was charging more uh, for a merchant to, to use American Express. So so if you run a bodega and it uh, costs you $1.50 to run an American Express card, but it only costs you a dollar to run a MasterCard, you could not encourage uh, your customers to use MasterCard instead under American Express's contract. Um, that was actually ruled to be constitutionally fine. So not actually a constitutional okay. question. It's Thank a statutory you. question okay. whether it violates uh, federal antitrust laws. Um, and the court ruled in a, in a five to four decision written by Justice Clarence Thomas that it did not violate antitrust uh, because uh, this is a two-sided market. The court kind of created this new category. It said, well, antitrust is concerned with anti-competitive behavior, creating monopolies, right? Mm-hmm. But when we're talking about credit cards, we have a two-sided market because credit cards are dealing with merchants and they're dealing with customers. Um, and so even though this they're called anti-steering provisions, they, they prevent the merchant from saying, hey, maybe use another card, even though these, these provisions are bad for merchants, right, because they're going to drive up costs for merchants, um, the court said, well, they, they seem to be good for customers because uh, customers are reaping all of these wonderful benefits from their American Express cards, they're getting upgrades and free stuff. Um, and so the court said, when you have a two-sided market like this, um, there's there's not a uh, competition problem. There's not an anti-competitive activity unless um, the behavior is, is crushing competition in both sides of that market. So the court said, because consumers are still benefiting, uh, it's not a violation of antitrust. Now, that is a really bad decision for a couple of reasons. The first, just factually, is that it's incorrect. So it's not true that American Express's anti-steering provisions give lots of benefits to their cardholders. The district court, which is uh, in charge of fact-finding here, said that the benefits to cardholders were not uh, so substantial that they outweighed the anti-competitive conduct here. And, and the Supreme Court just sort of blew that off and said, well, right. we know better. Um, But the second and and more problematic aspect of this ruling is that there are a lot of two-sided markets um, under the Supreme Court's rather hazy definition. And this case, this decision, is going to make it much more difficult to prove anti-competitive behavior in those markets. So uh, tech is obviously very interested in this decision because they have a lot of markets that could be defined as two-sided. Take a company like Uber, right? right? Uber is dealing with uh, with the passengers who are getting in cars. Mm-hmm. Uber is also dealing with the drivers of those cars. So imagine Uber um, puts in its contract with every driver that you're not allowed to drive for Lyft uh, right. when you're driving for Uber. Well, that is bad for drivers. That reduces their their ability to work for different companies, potentially could reduce their hours, could reduce their wages, um, makes it less flexible for them. Um, but Uber could say, well, we know it's we know it's bad for drivers, but it's good for customers because Uber is, insert pretext here, Uber is devoted to uh, a you know saturated market with a fully operative fleet that ensures every driver can always have a passenger and passengers will never have to wait too long for a car. And we can only guarantee that if we make sure all of our drivers are committed to Uber and Uber only. Well, uh, under the Amex decision, that would be okay, almost certainly, because only one side 
side of the two-sided market is getting shafted. The drivers, the other side, the passengers are allegedly benefiting. Um, and so that is just, that's, again, it's going to be a disaster. It's going to have to percolate through the lower courts to figure out the contours of this new doctrine. But it's not going to be good for consumers because we're, uh, we're going to end up probably getting screwed by more tech companies that will hide their anti-competitive behaviors under this new Amex doctrine. Right. And so many tech companies kind of act as intermediaries in this way, right? Of course. So we see like Google, which is this, you know, huge ad company that uh, sells ads for most of the websites on the internet, right? And so they might say, oh, it's good for the people who read your website, but it might be bad for you who's actually trying to make a living off your website. The big question is whether this should or will help Google. And there's a matter of debate because Thomas talks about how newspapers are different because the ads aren't directly to the customers. And it's, again, it's just a really hazy, ill-defined concept. And we're going to have to see what the lower courts do with it before we, we, we can know how big of a disaster it is. So the power of big tech companies aside, that was not the only uh, tech-adjacent or focused ruling from the Supreme Court recently. We also had, uh, as you put it in an article, a historic victory for privacy recently. Uh, and that was with the Carpenter decision. And it was at, about whether or not the government can look through your cell phone without a warrant. So not actually your cell phone uh, itself. The court ruled a few years ago that the, that the government does generally need a warrant to search your that cell phone. That was the phone. Riley decision. That was the Riley okay. decision. And this sort of builds on that by saying that the government also needs a warrant if it wants to go to your phone company and right. rifle through the records of all the places that your phone has been. So you may not know it, but when you're carrying around your cell phone, it is constantly churning over data um, that tells your phone company almost exactly where you are at all times. And your phone company keeps this data for years, uh, up to five years. And uh, until quite recently, the government was able to go to that company and say, give us all this data uh, with basically nothing but a, a hunch, with just a sort of minor suspicion that, well, we think he might be up to something. So we need to know everywhere he's been over the last five years. So they were making these broad requests with or without a warrant? Without a warrant. And so was that through national security letters or could they just ask? So they could ask under a process that was spelled out in this statute that was not designed for cell phones. It was it was passed a long time ago, well before the cell phone age, that gave the government, gave law enforcement a shortcut to access um, records that now we consider to be cell phone records, but all kinds of records that a third party can keep on their customers. Um, and so what the court said in in Carpenter, uh, by another five to four decision, this time with with Justice uh, Chief Justice John Roberts joining the liberals, is that uh, the, the government needs a warrant. So it needs probable cause, right, uh, to go to a company and get access to the records of everywhere your cell phone has been. Um, it cannot just go and say it has a hunch. It actually has to go to a neutral judge and say, here is our probable cause for criminal activity. Uh, and it can then present a warrant to the phone company and get that information. And uh, the court ruled that this is a Fourth Amendment search um, and that individuals have a reasonable expectation of privacy in, uh, Robert says, in the whole of their physical movements. So everywhere that you've been, everywhere you, that you've gone with your cell phone, you have a reasonable expectation of privacy in that information. And that means that under the Fourth Amendment, the government can't just access it willy nilly. Now, the government is able to access all kinds of data on us, uh, whether it's from our cell phone or from our Internet provider. And we do know that, you know, like through the National Security Agency, uh, they they do like 
tap the the wires and and collect information like that. Um, should people be happy with this ruling? Is this kind of a, a win for you said it was a win for privacy? Um, it seems, though, that there's such a kind of broad array of surveillance capabilities at the hands of the government. How does this stack against that? So I, I do think it's a, a very big victory for privacy. And the reason why is that the court's decision expressly limits this doctrine called third party doctrine uh, that the court concocted in the 1970s. And the court said then that you do not have a privacy interest in any information that you turn over to third parties. And at the time, it was talking about stuff like business records, okay, photocopies mm-hmm. of checks that that banks hold. Uh, the court said, well, you've given all that stuff over to uh, a bank, which is a third party, so you don't get to assert a Fourth Amendment privacy interest in it. Uh, in Carpenter, the court revisits and sharply limits that doctrine's application in the digital age. And the court says, look, we came up with this stuff well before everybody had a cell phone and a computer. And so we're not going to extend and apply the doctrine to cyber stuff that allows the government to peer into the details of your everyday life and every single movement that you make and every single, uh, potentially every single search that you conduct. This is where the decision seems to be leading. Um, It's not totally unprotected by the Fourth Amendment just because you turn it over to a tech company. That is, I think, the top line ruling from Carpenter, that just because you're turning over information to a tech company, be it Verizon or Google, you have not lost all of your privacy interests, your Fourth Amendment interests in that information. So, Mark, how might we expect the Supreme Court's stance on these sorts of issues to change post-Kennedy, or do we have any clue about that yet? So it's a good question because Kennedy did not often serve as a swing vote on tech issues. Um, The court, in fact, does not often divide ideologically on these issues. And you can see that in Carpenter. It was Chief Justice Roberts joining the liberals. Um, and Justice Neil Gorsuch actually wrote this this opinion saying, uh, if you had argued this differently, I might have voted against the government. Um, and Kennedy was probably most liberal on tech issues when it came to the First Amendment free speech. So there was a decision um, a, a little while back called Packingham versus North Carolina, uh, in which North Carolina had attempted to bar uh, sex offenders from basically from using the internet. Okay, they couldn't use Facebook, Twitter. They couldn't even go to Amazon or WashingtonPost.com. And the Supreme Court struck that down. And the decision was unanimous, but the court split on the rationale. And Justice Kennedy wrote this opinion joined only by the liberal justices that said we should not be altering or tailoring our free speech rules um, for the cyber age. That's what Kennedy always called it, the cyber age. Uh, (laughs) He said uh, he's just trying to make it a thing. He said, uh, because uh, this is the medium through which most people um, connect to their fellow countrymen, to their representatives, to people across the world, we should be applying free speech doctrine very robustly in this area and not kind of creating these pretextual reasons to limit free expression on the internet because the internet is very scary. Um, And you saw the other conservative justices splinter off into the separate decision that says, well, the internet is pretty scary. We're pretty scared of it. And 
And it, there are some pretty scary things that happen out there. So we're not so sure that free speech on the internet really deserves as much robust protection as, say, free speech in a newspaper. Uh, that will be an interesting divide moving forward. I am not sure that Justice Neil Gorsuch would have agreed with the other conservatives had he been on the court then. He seems to have a pretty stringently libertarian view of free expression. Um, and, and I could see him siding with the Kennedy view that anytime the government comes in and tries to regulate uh, expression or access to expression, that it's it's almost certainly running afoul of the First Amendment. So that's an issue I'd, I'd keep my eye on, see if this this new justice is as scared of the internet as some of the other conservatives are. So could that affect, for instance, if the government was trying to somehow say that Facebook needs to organize its news feed in a way that's better for democracy or elections? Is that the type of government intervention that a, a more libertarian view of online free speech might reject? Yes, absolutely. And I, I would also posit that any efforts under antitrust rules to make Google order its results in a certain way might violate free speech under this very libertarian view that the court has taken. Um, I, I think the court in this decision called Sorel versus IMS Health a couple years back said that uh, information and data can be a form of speech. And I can imagine the court building on that to say that Facebook cannot be forced to order its news in a certain way. Google cannot be forced to order its search results in a certain way because um, these are speakers, quote unquote. That's that's how the court puts it. They are speakers just like any other speaker. And, uh, you know, the government can't force a newspaper to run a certain editorial. And so it cannot. It also cannot force Google uh, to put certain results first or not put certain results first. The Supreme Court has used a lot of different words to describe the Internet and cyber age, as, as you put it recently. Uh can you tell us a little bit about how the Supreme Court has recently described the Internet or seems to understand or conceive of the Internet and what we might also expect looking forward with the change up in the courts? Yeah. So, I mean, I think this this goes to your previous question as well. The, the, the courts are hesitant to charge forth with new rules that apply to new technology. The courts recognize that technology is constantly changing and shifting. They themselves are frightened by it for the most part. Um, not all of them have cell phones. Uh, and it seems that, you know, we have a rather aged judiciary. <laughs> we have a lot of septuagenarians and octogenarians mm -hmm. on the court. They aren't, they aren't able to process these issues. I don't want to sound ageist, but they, they are frequently so un familiar with these mediums that it makes it difficult for them to understand the constitution. They might not be state. users. Yeah, right? they're yeah. not users. And and it's hard if you don't know, like, you, you, I think that you saw this divide in Carpenter, like Chief Justice John Roberts has a cell phone and his kids have cell phones and he doesn't want the government to be able to go in and like see everywhere he's been. And Justice Kennedy does like is not a big cell phone user and just isn't as concerned about this stuff. And there's, there's a usual rule under Fourth Amendment. Uh, this is not a real rule, but I mean, court watchers say that there's a Fourth Amendment rule that uh, if you can connect your case to technology that the justices themselves use and are familiar with, you have a much better chance of winning. Um, that was the case in 2012 when the court ruled um, that the police need a warrant to stick a GPS on a suspect's car, right? The justices all have cars. They've all seen GPS devices. They know how that could work. Mm -hmm. uh, it's true of Carpenter. And I think it's true moving forward in all of these cases that are going to be dealing with everything from Fourth Amendment searches to freedom of speech to antitrust and monopolies. Uh, it is good to have a tech literate judiciary. And the more tech literate, tech literate a judge is, typically the better and sharper uh, his or her opinion is as well. 
Mark Joseph Stern, we really appreciated having you on the show today. You know this stuff so well and speak about it so eloquently. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me on. All right, one last quick break and then don't close my tabs. Some of the best things we've seen on the web this week. Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Okay, it's time for Don't Close My Tabs. Will, let's start with you. What do you have open that you could not close this week? All right, well, I was traveling across the country this week, and so I got to ride on a plane. I didn't have internet, and that's when I finally weighed into my long Instapaper queue. These are like all the stories that I've been saving up to read that I just don't have time to read in the course of a normal day. Mm -hmm. And so my tab this week is sort of a textbook example of that. It is a, an essay from Real Life Magazine. This is a magazine about how tech affects humans and the relationship between technology and society. They only publish one thing a day, I think. Um, and this was by the poet and essayist Elisa Gabbert. The headline was, Big and Slow. How can we represent the threats that are too vast to see? And what if civilization itself is one of them? This is a great plain read uh, because it's really deep and really abstract. She ties together um, sculptures that are enormous and, and where enormity, um, I'm using that word incorrectly, but where their enormous scale is part of the art. Um, one of these is called the Kelpies. It's these gigantic hundred foot high horse heads that are in a park in Scotland. Um, and the, the feelings that they inspire in us and the fear that they can inspire in us. She talks about the phenomenon of megalophobia, which is the fear of giant things. And apparently there's a subreddit called R megalophobia, where you can go and see people's images of giant things that scare the crap out of them. And then she ties this together with threats to uh, our society and civilization that are too big for us to comprehend, climate change obviously being one of them. It's a fascinating and wide-ranging essay. Um, it kind of takes you out of time and, and away from the crazy news cycle that we're in. I would absolutely recommend it to anybody who thinks that megalophobia or big, slow threats sound intriguing. Uh, that sounds super intriguing. I would love to find the big amount of time I will need to read that, but it sounds <laughs> like it's right up my alley. Um, my tab this week is something that's not in a tab yet. <laughs> All right. Is that right. still okay? Um, but it will be one day. Uh, it is actually a movie that I saw earlier this year, but is coming out this week. It's called Sorry to Bother You. And it is by Boots Riley, who is a musician from Oakland, where I live. He was a lead singer of a group called The Coup. And have you heard of this movie? It's gotten some buzz. Yeah, I've just seen a little bit about it, but I, I haven't read up on it. It is amazing. It's one of the best movies I've seen in a long time. It's a comedy science fiction movie. Um, and it is about... Uh, 
a black telemarketer named Cassius Green um, that kind of discovers a, a magic key to success. And I'll stop there, but it is um, political and smart and it gets into labor and social dynamics. And it's one of those movies where you just feel different after you watch it because it's it's really like any good piece of art. You know, after you consume it, you feel different afterwards, whether it's a painting or a beautiful novel or or a film. And uh I'm not going to tell say too much about it, but um, I really recommend um, folks take a look at it because it especially speaks to kind of the uh, dynamics with with activists and uh, and kind of the political situation that's happening in the country now in um, a really sharp and and, and poignant way. So um, I want to recommend folks go out and see that film, and and when it is available for streaming, if you don't, uh, you know, stream it in your tab. So, <laughs> not a tab yet. And by the way, our producer Max Jacobs just texted saying you haven't lived in Oakland long enough if you haven't seen Boots Riley on the That's street. That's right. Max, is that is that way? Is that your way of humble bragging that you have seen Boots Riley on the street, and I have. therefore you have lived in Oakland long enough? <laughs> yes, I have seen him several times, and I actually biked through the set of Sorry to Bother You on accident on the way to my office. Yeah, and I just want to say that so, if you live in Oakland, you probably have a story about Boots Riley or someone in his family or someone from the crew. And uh, he's just a very local character. And so to see this movie get so much buzz um, and to see him thrive now as a filmmaker has been really exciting for me as an Oaklander. All right. Well, I think you've certainly justified our, your inclusion of that as a, a tab on this week's show. Thank you very much for sharing that. That's going to do it for our show today. You can get updates about what's coming up next by following us on Twitter at IfThenPod. You can also email us at ifthen at slate.com. Send us your tech questions, show and guest suggestions, or just say hi. We want to read more of your mail on the show soon. And we are getting the letters that you're sending. And there have been some really great suggestions recently. So please do not send them. We are getting them. It's just hard to respond to all of the emails we get as kind of semi-public figures in the media. So uh Thanks for those who have been sending. Yeah, and we are going to do a mailbag segment on a future show. So if you haven't heard us mention your email yet, that doesn't mean we're not going to get to it. And I'll also add that uh, if you're sending us stuff about recent things on the news, you know, I'm constantly being like, oh, that's a good idea. And like, you know, forwarding it to folks. So we're seeing it. Thank you. Um, And uh, it's definitely something that we're uh, thinking about as we consider how to construct each show. So thanks for that. You can follow me and Will on Twitter as well. I'm at April Laser, and Will is at Will Oremus. Thanks again to our guest and colleague, Mark Joseph Stern. You can find his work at Slate.com and find him on Twitter at MJS underscore DC. I highly recommend that follow. Thanks to everyone who has left us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. It's a big part of promoting our show, and we deeply appreciate it. If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Our producer is Max Jacobs. Thanks to Don Aulis at A Room with a VU in Santa Barbara. Thanks to Danielle Hewitt here in Slate Studios in D.C. Also, thanks to Robert Kirby at Fantasy Studios in Berkeley. We'll see you next week.